Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 5th of November. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week, as leaders meet for a landmark climate change conference, we explore the state of the environment in the Middle East and North Africa and what the future might hold. Uh, The last couple of years, even this year, this particular summer, a lot of countries in the Middle East, certainly around the Arabian Peninsula, have broken temperature records during the summer. And then the new Arab Voices' Nick McAlpin sits down with Palestinian activist Mohammed Al-Kurd to discuss his new I'll book of struggle. poetry. But really I wanted to create a book that also had something to contribute to the conversation regarding the Palestinian struggle that would have critiques about how the Palestinian struggle is tackled in media and is tackled in literature. But first, Rosie um, McCabe gets us up to speed with the biggest news from the past two weeks. Sudan has been embroiled in a political crisis over the last two weeks as its military junta detained civilian leaders and dissolved the transitional government. Joining us to talk about events in Sudan is a new Arab journalist and friend of the podcast, Amar Salahi. Hello, Amar. Hello, Rosie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So what has happened in Sudan over the past few weeks, and can we call it a coup? Well, the short answer is yes. On October the 25th, armed forces detained Prime Minister Abdullah Handouk and other ministers, and they took control of the TV station and shut down internet access in the country. This was followed by an announcement by General Abdel Fattah Burhan that a new government would be formed. Now, until that point, Burhan had chaired the Sovereignty Council, and that's a mixed military-civilian body which was acting as Sudan's collective head of state. But Burhan also announced that that was going to be dissolved. Now, Prime Minister Hamdouk's office, they said that what had happened was a complete coup and they urged people to take to the streets to protest. And why has this crisis unfolded? Ever since the revolution which ousted longtime dictator Omar Bashir in 2019, Sudan has had a delicate political climate. In April 2019, Bashir was overthrown by the military after mass popular protests against his dictatorship. After his ouster, protests continued and the military dealt with them violently in some cases, killing over 100 people at a protest camp near the army headquarters in Khartoum in June 2019. Eventually, an agreement was reached creating the Sovereignty Council and installing Hamdouk's civilian-led government. Now, both Hamdouk's government and the Sovereignty Council were supposed to lead Sudan on an interim basis until elections could be held in 2022. But in September, there was an attempted coup blamed on army officers close to Bashir. Now, this is a different coup from the one Burhan led recently, and this coup attempt failed. But after after September's coup attempt, tensions between Burhan and Hamdouk escalated dramatically, and Burhan blamed Hamdouk's government for being out of touch with the needs of the Sudanese people and for creating the conditions which led to what we saw on October the 25th. So what did the Sudanese people want? Now, it's estimated that nearly 4 million people have marched against the coup throughout Sudan. They've carried flags and they've chanted slogans like, no, no to military rule, and this country is ours and our government is civilian. 
Now, General Burhan claimed that his recent actions were to preserve the 2019 revolution, which overthrew Omar Bashir. But it doesn't seem that many people in Sudan have accepted this. People are now demanding a full handover of power to a civilian government. But at the same time, we need to keep in mind that in the run-up to the coup, there were also pro-Burhan protests calling for Hamdouk's resignation, and they were supported by groups like the Darfur-based Justice and Equality Movement. So even though there's widespread opposition to the coup, Hamdouk's government doesn't have unanimous support by any means. And how has the international community reacted to events in Sudan? The international community has reacted very strongly and very quickly to events in Sudan. Immediately after the coup happened, the UN, the EU and the African Union all condemned it. The UN, in particular, it spoke out against the detention of Hamdouk and other civilian officials, and they called on them to be released. Now, most recently, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who uh, were seen as close to the military, they've also called for a return to civilian rule. And this all makes it very doubtful whether Burhan and the military can keep control of the country with all this international opposition. Distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to declare open the 26th session of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. World leaders have gathered in the Scottish city of Glasgow for COP26, and what has been described by some has the last hope for planet Earth. A chance to end reliance on fossil fuels, a chance to reverse the rising temperatures, a chance to save natural habitats, and a chance to push back rising sea levels. Others have been less optimistic, and looking back at the string of failed promises from previous climate conferences, the current situation that we find our planet in today and the noticeable China and Russia-shaped holes at the conference, you could understand why. Like the rest of the planet, the Middle East and North Africa have not escaped the scourges of climate change. But with the region home to some of the world's most active oil producers, the issue of climate change comes face-to-face with other regional issues of geopolitics, economics, social structures and military force. So how has climate change affected the Middle East and North Africa? And how will they cope with a changing environment? Can oil-producing giants such as Saudi Arabia ever end their alliance on the black stuff? And at the intersection of climate change and politics, how can a state like Palestine tackle climate issues in the face of an occupation? Really, the biggest, most immediate challenge is related to extreme heat. And connected to extreme heat is issue of uh, water scarcity, uh, more so um, the reliability of water resources to, to provide water supply and meet the water demands in the region. This is Mohammed Mahmoud, director of the Climate and Water Program at the Middle East Institute. And then because of this reduction in, in water resources availability, this extreme heat, these sort of hot and dry conditions, uh, propagate aridification, which then potentially impacts other areas such as agriculture. 
The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has anticipated global warming of 1.5% between 2030 and 2052. And without drastic action to tackle emissions, by the end of the century, the global average temperature will rise between 2.7 and 3 degrees. While the numbers might seem small, they represent an impending catastrophe, which will result in irrevocable changes in the Middle East and North Africa. The last couple of years, even this year, this particular summer, a lot of countries in the Middle East, certainly around the Arabian Peninsula, have broken temperature records during the summer. And you're seeing the potential of countries that would have maybe peaked in having uh, summer temperatures at around, you know, low 50 degrees Celsius could very well start moving into having their higher range of summer temperatures well within the 50 to 60 degrees Celsius range. Rising global temperatures will create an unbearably hot climate for people to live in. Anything else? The other impact that we're seeing manifest more significantly is the increase in extreme weather events, particularly as it relates to cyclone activity originating from uh, the Indian Ocean. And we saw it just uh, a month or so ago, uh, Hurricane Shaheen hit uh, Oman. Extreme weather events, we can add that to the list. Because of the increase in sort of aridification and drier conditions, we've noticed more incidences of wildfires, particularly uh, around the Mediterranean coast band, so North Africa and the Levant region. So? Some areas will be hit by cyclones, while others will be starved of rain, creating ideal conditions for wildfires. Anything else for the climate change bingo card? But the precipitation events that do occur can be more extreme. And so over the last couple of years, you've seen this dry conditions in North Africa, say, uh, along the Nile River Basin, Egypt, Sudan, down to Ethiopia. But then when there were uh, uh, rainfall events, they've been very intense and has led to flooding. A cocktail of serious problems. And furthermore, a phenomenon known as the urban heat island adds to rising temperatures. Dark coloured buildings absorb heat throughout the day, car use fill the air with emissions, and the air conditioning units, which may wonderfully cool the inside of a home or office, pump a vast amount of heat outside. But what ends up happening because of the urban heat island effect in the cities, all that heat that's being absorbed by buildings tends to be released at night. So the temperature remains warm, maybe not as warm as during the day, but warmer than average. So certainly during the summer hot period, folks don't get a reprieve uh, from the heat. The dangers facing the region are real and their impact will be felt throughout societies. When it comes to action to tackle climate change across the region, it's a mixed bag. When we think of the more developed countries in the region in terms of what they can do and what they should be doing, the countries in the Gulf, certainly the Gulf cooperation countries, have more capacity to do impactful change because they're more financially capable of doing so. Uh, than some of the more uh, less developed or less financially capable countries in the Middle East. One can argue that the developed countries, and certainly GCC countries, can be a little bit more aggressive uh, in terms of 
their plans to reduce their particular ability to generate emissions, and primarily because a good chunk of them, or most of them essentially, are oil-producing nations. Taking steps to prevent climate change is a noble task, but tackling this issue will require a global effort, and if the likes of China, India and Russia continue to rely heavily on fossil fuels, climate change will continue and the Middle East and North Africa will be affected regardless of the efforts they make. This isn't a reason to discount efforts for mitigation, but it is grounds for states, particularly low-income states, to consider concentrating efforts on adaptation. Adaptation is within any nation's purview to address. It could be it could include very costly projects or it could even be very simple community-level based uh, initiatives. Water conservation is at the very low end. So water conservation requires mitigating uh, basically water demand, and that can be at the community level. So initiatives to encourage people to use water more efficiently. The other extreme of a more expensive project is looking at water reuse or water augmentation initiatives, where nations and municipalities can invest in infrastructure And then when dealing with extreme heat, things as simple as adjusting work hours for uh, workers that have to work outdoors or building infrastructure that reduces this urban heat island effect. It could be as simple as painting your buildings color white versus a darker shade. So Whether it be mitigation or adaptation, both options, depending on the country, are available. But there's an elephant in the room, a big oily elephant that makes a lot of money. So I think the important part here is that when we talk about oil, we're talking about what exists down in the ground and what sort of a proven reserve as to what can be used. This is Dr Oz Hassan, Associate Professor at the University of Warwick and Specialist in Transatlantic Relations with the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf. But in terms of proven reserves that can actually be useful for you know modern life if you like Saudi Arabia really is up there there are a number of oil producing states in the Middle East and North Africa the UAE Oman and Bahrain are all pretty big hitters but Saudi Arabia stands above all and it controls basically 17% of the world's proven oil reserves of that basically 50% contributes to its GDP and that's really because what Saudi Arabia tends to do is sell it abroad. And so that comes under its export earnings. And so oil makes up 70% of everything that Saudi Arabia exports around the world. The figure of 17% comes from a formal assessment made by OPEC, an intergovernmental organisation made up of oil-producing nations. The true figure is a closely guarded secret which Saudi Arabia has not revealed since 1982. Well, in many ways, it's a national security issue. What Saudi Arabia has in the ground really does affect uh, the geopolitics of the region. So not being open about how much oil was there and things like that actually gives the Saudi government a level of deniability or a way of sort of manipulating the way in which its oil reserves are seen within the world. While Saudi Arabia is sitting on a vast wealth of oil, they are unable to make any more. Their stocks will only ever go down. So if we take the OPEC assessment as fact... 
then how long has Saudi Arabia got before it's scraping the bottom of the barrel? Roughly speaking, we've seen some calculations coming out. And if it was a case of Saudi Arabia using oil for domestic purposes only, i.e. without exports, the amount of oil that Saudi Arabia has got would, would last like, you know, over 200 years. So there really isn't a, a problem in, the, in terms of, of what's in the ground um, for domestic use. In recent years, Saudi Arabia has been getting high off its own supply. Oil consumption in the country has shot up, making it now the sixth largest consumer of oil in the world. And estimates suggest that by 2030, Saudi Arabia could be a net importer of oil. But as we know, Saudi Arabia isn't only using its oil for domestic use. So if we take into consideration exports, now how long have they got? If it continues to export the way it does, then really you are in trouble because that, again, would take you to that 2030 figure where all of a sudden, you know, it, if it carried on selling oil abroad at the current rate that it's doing, it keeps pulling out uh, more barrels per day. So moving from 12 million barrels per day to 13 million barrels per day, which is what it's promised for, I think, 2027. Then actually, you know, you, you could find that there's this tipping point where all of a sudden those two things, the imports and exports, no longer balance and you have to move to a different energy model for the country. Saudi Arabia recently flexed its green thinking with the announcement of the Saudi Green Initiative by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. In short, they expressed their intention to reach net carbon zero emissions by 2060 plant 10 billion trees in the country, rehabilitate roughly 40 million hectares of degraded land and generate 50% of the kingdom's energy from renewables by 2030, which all sounds pretty good. The Saudi Green Initiative is really um, something they've come up with that I would refer to as sort of greenwashing. Oh. It's basically an offsetting scheme. At the same time, they're sort of saying they're going to offset. They're actually sort of increasingly saying, yeah, but we're also going to increase by one million barrels per day uh, by 2027, the amount we're actually outputting. So the two things don't reconcile themselves when you're faced with what a a minimum will be a 1.5 degree increase um, in global temperatures. And if that turns into a sort of five degree increase, then you are going to see the collapse of the Gulf region as a, as a habitable space. And so the two things don't go together. And it doesn't really matter how they try and sell that. That's kind of where they are. So maybe the Green Initiative doesn't entirely stand up to scrutiny. As the issue of climate change has grown larger in the global consciousness, Saudi Arabia has, not for the first time in its history, found itself torn between its traditional role, now that of an oil-producing nation, and moving to a new model. The problem Saudi Arabia faces is this, that it's actually undergoing what I would regard as an existential threat, in that you've got a couple of options with climate change happening as it is. On the one hand, you can reduce burning uh, fossil fuels, i.e. reduce oil, and that fundamentally undermines the Saudi economy. And what that does in turn is it undermines Saudi Arabia's global and regional position, 
and many elements of the state. And that's sort of one part. But on the other hand, if you continue to um, burn fossil fuels in the way that um, Saudi Arabia sort of needs, then what you're actually going to get is a gulf that's actually uninhabitable. It, you know, even at current projections of 1.5 degrees centigrade increase, what you're going to find in Saudi Arabia is that you, you effectively can't go outside. Um, and that has quite profound impacts as well. And that's why Saudi Arabia is really, really uh, stuck um, over what, it, what it's going to do around climate issues. Should Saudi Arabia choose to do away with oil as its main source of energy and switch to wind or solar, then, according to Dr Hassan, rising temperatures will likely throw up serious technical challenges. When you're talking about building things outside like solar, like wind, you've got problems with constructing it, maintaining it. You've then got, at those sort of temperatures, you've got issues with equipment failures. You've got things like planes actually can't take off. Um, and land you've got railway that would buckle under that sort of temperature yeah this isn't a case of i can't go out during the day and that's unfortunate and i've got to sort of stay in air conditioning it's a case of actually you are going to get systemic failures across the board so yes renewables are going to be part of that picture the question has to be though how quickly saudi arabia can actually get there whilst trying to avoid a situation where those technologies themselves are no longer possible on top of the environmental and technical challenges faced by saudi arabia if the kingdom were to run out of oil or drastically move away from a heavy carbon-based economy then a complete rewriting of saudi society could be witnessed. The Saudi government says, you know, we'll subsidise oil, we'll look after you, we'll provide you with a good life. And in return for that, you have to accept certain restrictions on your freedom, you have to accept the monarchy as it is, you have to accept that the way in which the Saudi royal family want to run the country. So that in that sense, there's a sort of social contract that's built on the legitimacy of oil. Negotiating between climate policies and state interests is an intricate challenge. But when those challenges must be met in the face of occupation, they can almost appear to be insurmountable. The main challenges of climate change in Palestine definitely is the occupation. This is Dr Muna Dajani, a postdoctoral researcher at Lancaster Environment Centre. Uh, one of the main challenges when it comes to climate change is the way we frame it. So do we think of climate change only in terms of climatic indicators or do we also think about climate change in the way that Palestine has also been undergoing significant transformations since 1948 and even before in really changing where Palestinians live, uh, how do they access their resources and what type of sovereignty they have over uh, those resources. In terms of climate change indicators, Palestine is facing many of the same challenges as the rest of the region. Uh, We have the lack of precipitation that is uh, already happening. We have rising temperatures and rising sea levels as well that are some of the aspects and impacts of climate change. Unlike the rest of the region, Palestine also faces the Israeli occupation. Issues such as falling levels of precipitation are compounded by Israel's control over water resources. Israel has been controlling more than 80% 
of the water uh, in the West Bank, for instance, in addition to controlling the Jordan River as a, you know, as a transboundary resource. And so many different ways Israel actually focuses and strengthens its hegemony over natural resources. The situation in Gaza is, is similar. So we cannot really speak about a water scarcity situation in Gaza or water pollution without really thinking about why it happened but without looking um, uh, historically at uh, this legacy um, of Israeli water hegemony. Israel's dominance over Palestinian water resources is just one of the tools that they use to impose its control. But they also engage in perhaps even more pernicious activities by preventing improvements, upgrades and repairs to infrastructure which could otherwise help to save water. As we know, you know, Israel controls even in inside the Palestinian Authority jurisdiction. They cannot really build, for example, water infrastructure, drainage infrastructure without prior approval of a joint water committee that, that's called between Israeli and Palestinians. If we want to enhance our adaptation, we still have to go through conditional uh, and very unequal processes to get permits to carry out the needed infrastructure to protect ourselves uh, and to um, to mitigate uh, climate change impact. For the Israeli state, they are free to follow any mitigation or adaptation policy they see fit. Where Israel, on one hand, is climate secure uh, because it has the institution, it has it has control over the resources and it has, uh, you know, the technology. So it puts it on a different caliber in terms of their readiness and uh, adaptation to climate change. While there is a demand for the Palestinian Authority to to be that representative, to be responsible for climate adaptation, but in a, under you know a situation where it has no real jurisdiction, no not any sovereignty over its natural resources. For Dr. Dajani, the status of Palestine as a state throws up further problems when it seeks to join global efforts. Palestine is trying to make itself, you know, an international actor uh, within those groups. Uh, But it's really a bit difficult to imagine uh, how can Palestine actually um, be present and, and, and actually benefit from those. Because at the end of the day, as I've mentioned, dealing with climate change as a global phenomena that requires global solutions equally by different countries around the world, although they're contributions to our crisis today are not the same. And then you have yeah, the, the issue that Palestinian Authority needs to adhere to those conventions, but at the same time has no real authority on the ground to do so. While Palestine is the recipient of international support and aid, Palestinian activists have lamented the manner in which the issue of climate change is linked to poverty in an apolitical fashion, rather than as an issue linked to occupation and injustice. Today, we, we don't see really any uh, significant engagement with, uh, you know, ending the occupation per se, but it's always has been kind of dealing with the status quo and conflict management that kind of really leaks into environmental conflict management or water conflict management and climate change. So all of them kind of fall within that kind of categorization that, oh, we need to deal with this, with this now to avoid catastrophe. But uh, yeah, the occupation ends up being put on the shelf uh, while we try to deal with climate change. The climate solutions that are put forward are very much technical or like investing in, let's say, technologies uh, or carrying out 
uh, very apolitical solutions. International organisations and aid groups are eager to support green initiatives, as happening in the occupied Golan Heights. Not least because they are worthwhile, but they are also popular and serve a desire for action. But for activists and climate researchers like Dr Dujani, this support must come hand in hand with accountability and be wary of green colonialism. Climate change is a, is a minefield because if anything is framed as being a green intervention or a green investment or a commitment by a country, it doesn't mean that it's benign. It means that we have to kind of unpack it and see how is it happening, on which land is it happening, how is it excluding certain communities and benefiting others, especially if we're talking about an entity like Israel that is committing violations, whether on international law, uh, on a daily basis. Regardless of the country, being aware of the policies, calling out failings and demanding climate justice is a noble endeavour. Activists have played a vital role and they will continue to play a vital role, especially when it comes to raising the alarm and calling for action. What nations in the Middle East and North Africa must now be focusing on is supplying people who can answer that call. Final words to Mohammed Mahmoud. Activism is great, but when we think of something like this that is more technically or scientifically inclined on how you deal and adjust with climate change, you need to leverage more experts, practitioners, and honestly smart people who also make the action possible, feasible, and logical, depending on, on what the action is to address climate change for a particular country. So I'd also encourage those young people to go, maybe go into the STEM fields to, to help you know, carry that, that desire and, and actually make it into reality. Mohammed al-Kurd is a Palestinian activist from occupied East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighbourhood. He rose to international prominence in May amid Israeli attempts to expel his and other families from their homes. His new poetry book, Rifqa, was released on October 12th. It pays tribute to his late grandmother of the same name and stirringly reveals what Palestinian life under Israeli occupation is like. The New Arab Voice spoke with Mohammed on Tuesday, November 2nd, the same day the Sheikh Jarrah families rejected a so-called compromise which was put forward by Israel's Supreme Court. For now, this would have allowed them to stay put for 15 years, but only as protected tenants who recognise their homes as belonging to an Israeli settler group, until an eventual property settlement anticipated to go the settlers' way. I started by asking Mohammed what he intended to create with Rifqa. With Rifqa, I, I mean, it was my humble attempt at joining the Palestinian resistance literature tradition, you know, the kind of works that writers like Rashid Hussain has created, the kind of works that writers like Hussain Karafani has created. I wanted to create a book that would not only narrate Palestinian experiences that rely heavily on oral histories and collective testimonies of past and of um, resistance and of shared struggle, but really, I wanted to create a book that also had something to contribute to the conversation regarding the Palestinian struggle that would have critiques about how the Palestinian struggle is tackled in media and is tackled in literature. Because in my opinion, 
there are ways in which we become dehumanized as Palestinians, particularly when we are written in English. And I wanted to either challenge those ways or satirize them. The occupation interferes and intervenes in all areas of Palestinian life. So could you just talk me through about why you included the phrase tear gas and tea among the breakfast food and drink items in the poem Bulldozers Undoing God? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I with that, at the time, I kind of wanted to comment on the sense of normalcy we Palestinians were forced into. The idea that you have to deal with tear gas in the morning or you have to deal with skunk water trucks being shot at your fruit trees in the afternoon or the idea that you you might be arrested or searched at any time, the idea that you might be thrown into the streets, all of these ideas just become business as usual. And really, when you're like an outsider looking at it, it's ridiculous, right? None of this should be business as usual. So in placing tear gas and tea together and in in another poem that didn't make it into the um, book that I wrote way many, many years ago, uh, placing airstrikes and cookies on the same sentence, you kind of um, highlight the absurdity of living under military occupation, of the fact that life actually persists. Um, despite all of this, this book is really about the Nakba. And I think literature about the Palestinian Nakba has been um, ever more prevalent in the past few um, years. And I think that's amazing and incredible and I, and I welcome it. Um, and I think, you know, I also wanted to highlight the the Nakba as being in our everyday lives, as being things that we're constantly reminded of. If it's not, um, you know, a quote unquote eviction notice that you get in the mail at some point, it is going to be the military barrier that you are going to have to encounter to cross to another city that's that's otherwise just a 10 minute drive away. Um, there is these constant reminders of your dispossession, these constant reminders of the systemic effort to displace you. Um, and they happen in between the trees. They happen in between the blue skies. And that is all what makes them even more emphasized. In the poem, Boy Sells Gum at Kandalia, um, as Rebecca Ruth Gold notes in her review of uh, your book, Rifka, this sees you, you know, as she says in her words, shocked and made to reflect on a child's outrage when you suggest that he stopped doing this job, I guess uh, you could call it, despite his family's needs. You know, something that kind of came out of me, and I'll be interested to see if you agree, is kind of the extent to which your book aims to be a wider picture of this to emotionally shake up the reader in general throughout and their viewpoints on Palestine. That that's one of my favorite poems, um, Boy Boy Sos Gamet Kalandia, because um it's it seeks to challenge, right? We have these cliches about Palestine, right? You and and the the children um throwing stones at the tanks is one of them and certainly the children um selling gum or Kleenex at the at the at the checkpoint is also another one of them. And I wanted to um, kind of challenge this by writing about it in a way that has not been written about before. That's one thing. But also, you know, I want I really wanted to highlight, you know, everyone knows about Palestinians having different legal statuses and everyone knows about um, there being, you know, completely desperate geographies, fabricated geographies across colonized Palestine. But what does that translate into, into real life, right? 
I was born in Jerusalem. One of my closest friends was born two hours away from me in Haifa. And then another friend of mine was born in Bethlehem or in Ramallah, right? All three of us, all four of us share incredibly different experiences and, and live through incredibly fragmented lives. And it's hard sometimes in moments like, you know, encountering a child selling gum at Kalandia. It's hard not to be challenged or not to feel like an outsider by the experiences they, they live through. I also didn't want to approach that poem as like a gazing poet um, re reflecting on the romantic, uh, yeah, tragic aspect of a child missing school to sell gum. I also wanted to disrupt that form by also being challenged as a poet and being, uh, you know, called out per se, by the, by the boys selling gum and kind of um, not reaching a, a concrete conclusion. And I wanted the reader to kind of make their own minds about that, that encounter. But it meant a lot to me, or, or I really wanted, at least I attempted really hard to approach such poems that tackle socioeconomic problems like, the, like these in Palestinian society, to approach them with complexity that would problematize um, my even my own behavior and even my reflections reflections on on them without dehumanizing the subjects at hand and I really I, mean, I, th I think this is just my humble attempt at that and I hope I succeeded. I think you definitely did and and to me uh, another part about that is it really brought out kind of an emotionality and a subjectivity to life and to politics so I was wondering your thoughts on the role uh, or the part emotion has to play as opposed to just logic when it comes to politics, something that your book is is very much about. Um, thank you. That's I think that's an, that's a very interesting question. I think, Yanni, uh, first of all, you have the stereotype that Palestinians are like really passionate people if somebody's being generous and like really irrational people if somebody's being menacing. You have that stereotype just there in the corner of your room, in the corner of your mind constantly, and then the corner of how you perceive yourself. I think emotionality plays a huge, right? Like we are, we are living through a system that is incredibly emotionally draining. And it's, it's by design that you're, that you're emotionally drained. And I wanted to, I wanted to embrace that emotionality because that it's, it's part of my everyday life. It forces itself in my conversation. It forces itself to be in my living room. The emotional abuse of the occupation that really forces you to pause your everyday things, forces you to pause your otherwise rational articulations in order to dwell in this tragedy that you're being forced into. And instead of shying away from them, I wanted to embrace them because really this is emotionally draining. Um, and I can only imagine how emotionally draining it is for Palestinians who have it worse than I do. Another thing is the way that your collection turns to kind of personal experiences of faith and of mental health. You mentioned the antidepressant Zoloft, known to our UK listeners as sertraline. Um, you know, why was that so important for you to include in Rifka? Um, I don't know if it was important for me to include. Honestly, I got my book deal with Haymarket, the wonderful Haymarket, last year, I believe, way before. You know, I've always had a small, very, very small, humble following of people that would read my work. And I just didn't know that I would have this, this much of a wider audience by the time the book would be out. If I had a choice, I probably wouldn't have included that 
in the book because it just feels like very telling. But in a lot of ways, I'm very grateful that um, I didn't know where the book would end up because otherwise it would have been way more censored knowing that there would be way more people reading it. But I think any, um, to, to answer the question briefly, um, discussing mental health does not come as a negation of writing about Palestine. It's often underrepresented, but it's like a, a direct and also like an expected consequence of settler colonialism to have this like difficult relationship with mental health. So I'm glad it's there. You know, the last question directly about your book is around the fact that an omnipresent part of your collection uh, and your life uh, uh, is women. Why is this so central to your book and what link do you see between the liberation of women and the liberation of Palestine? Um, this is a good place for me to shout out the Palestinian feminist movement, Talat, whose um, slogan so eloquently summarizes what I think about this. They say, which means there's no liberated homeland without liberated women. But to answer the question directly, I'm not like this feminist savior who's going to like save Palestinian women from the shackles of Arab patriarchy. No, Palestinian women are central to my work because they are central to Palestinian life. Because there is no way, if you're writing about Palestinians and about Palestine and giving women a supporting role you're just simply not writing the truth so it's not like it's it wasn't like my life I've been informed by so many wonderful women so many wonderful activists um, my mother and my grandmother certainly but also just like people that have taught me so much about the world taught me so much about how to see things have been women and it's because that's how things how it is those are the people who are on the front lines those are the people who are working um in these organizations those are the people who are gathering this analysis and creating this this framework and i hope i like so humbly hope that i did it in a way that's not fetishizing and did it in a way that's not flat and i'm sure there are critiques um and i'm sure there's always room for improvement but very plainly, I think women were central to this book, not only because it was named after my grandmother um, and the lessons I learned of my grandmother, but because women are just purely fundamentally central to the Palestinian struggle without even embellishing the, the facts and without even like making an effort to put them front and center. Mohammed El Kurd ending that segment from Nick McAlpin. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Rose McCabe, and Nick McAlpin, with additional help from Amar Salahi and Safa Amar. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our new Instagram page for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.